Hello, this is Andy Brewer of the Northwest Area Health Education Center at Wake Forest School of Medicine, one of nine regional centers of the NCAHEC system. Today I have my guest, Corey Richardson, who is the CEO and Clinical Director for Integrative Care of Greater Hickory. And uh, their uh, mission is to promote self-sufficiency and pro-social life choices through effective person-centered education, training, and treatment programs. So good morning. Good morning. Um so I've said this many times on the podcast, um, uh, the opposite of addiction is social connection. Is that, is that a good, good, good way to start? It could be. <laughs> um, unfortunately, just being around a lot of people, you can be around a lot of people and they all be junkies. So I don't agree with that specifically, but I do think the social influences. So if you want to start fundamentally, uh, addiction is a medical condition. And we're going to talk maybe specifically about substance use disorder. And it, uh, just like most conditions like diabetes have a biopsychosocial and some say spiritual component, uh, so does addiction. Mm-hmm. And it's no different than any other one. And you say, well, what do you mean? Diabetes is just a, you know, plain old boring medical condition. But if you sit on the couch a lot, that's behavior. And if you're eating a lot of bad food, that's behavior. And if you're stress eating and getting worse and worse, your A1C keeps going up. That's, that's part of that psychological piece. And yeah, medicine might be part of this. Uh, and then we have known that some spiritual connection may be a part, a part of treatment planning as well. And so addiction is absolutely no different than any other medical condition. Uh, and while social influences are great, if your only social influences are people in active addiction, I have to disagree. Mm-hmm. But if you surround yourself with people who are in active recovery and positive influences, that's something. So addiction is probably 55% genetic. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, I'm, uh, a recovering drug and alcohol kind of guy. My father drank himself to death. His father drank himself to death. So there's probably a genetic piece there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that there is definitely some great new research out that trauma in early childhood may affect the, the, um, the incidence and rates of addiction. And then, and then finally, environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of my research with the North Carolina Physician Health Program means availability. What's, what, what's around you? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, do you get involved with it? So mm-hmm. if you had a, a back injury and you, you didn't know there was a substance use disorder in your family or it was some uncle years ago with alcohol, uh, never coming in contact, you'd never know. You know, if you, you're allergic to peanuts and you never touched a peanut before, you never know you're allergic to peanuts. Mm-hmm. And so some families and some and don't ever touch alcohol. And maybe there's a family history there way, way back in a genetic predisposition, but they'll never know. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of a confluence. Not everybody gets diabetes, but bad by dieting and bad and no exercise may create diabetes later in life. Right. And then some people are born with diabetes. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Well, that's a good segue, I think, into the integrative model of care. So can you elaborate on, on what, what, what that means? That sure. is a pretty loaded term, but or – suggests all these things because you just mentioned a lot of different pieces that that are involved with that so it seems like the care model would would need care to be model that. is absolutely essential and we want to look at evidence-based models of care when we treat any disorder we want to look at research but you know everyone knows now and i think if you looked at the carl rogers and some of the other you know earlier work we have different inputs to get really good treatment outcomes uh, I'm, I graduated PA school in 92. And back then, I think if you, if you had a, di- a diagnosis in front of you and you wrote a script, everything's fine. 
And nobody ever considered, could they afford the medicine? Could they afford the ADA diet that you're, that you're prescribing? Uh, did they have a grocery store that was nearby that had good food? And so all of a sudden, when you look at these social determinants health that everyone's throwing around now, mm-hmm. uh, good practitioners always realize that if people can't afford the medicine and they can't get the medicine, um, they weren't going to get better. And so uh, integrated care initially started back as a patient-centered medical home. A uh, funny story is I was actually diagnosed with cancer, an aggressive form of lymphoma, and was getting treatment here. So I stayed in North Carolina. I came home to North Carolina for treatment and stayed in North Carolina and took over my parents' uh, medical practice. And at that point, they were kind of winding down, but I had nothing else to do but take care of my grandparents and uh, go through cancer treatment. So we started to look at the patient-centered medical home, and that's why I got involved with Northwest AHEC and a lot of the uh, providers here, the the managers here. And we started to infuse the old-school medical practice with a lot of new uh, inputs, like ancillary testing for EMGs and PFTs and also counseling. And so you started to really look at that model. At the same time, uh, I was finishing up treatment. I realized I was going to live through it, I got my state license and I uh, went on to do my doctoral work uh, through uh, applied health science research. And so I was really looking at these models. Um, the opioid crisis was in full squ- swing at that time, around 2011 and 2012. And so when we opened up the counseling po- component and I uh, got my North Carolina license as addiction specialist, we uh, added what we would call an integrated model for treatment of addiction. So you would have a, a true evidence-based model like, and everyone knows about cognitive behavioral therapy and everybody knows about motivational interviewing, but there is an older school model that's been around before even BF Skinner's behaviorism. It was called 12 steps. So 12 steps facilitation is a true evidence-based model that has been tested against other models and works. And that's a model that saved my life 21 years ago. Um, I had ruined my life due to addiction, uh, met overdose, almost overdose many times. And uh, the only thing that ever worked with me is when I went through the medical board's program for treatment, I was made to go to AA. Mm-hmm. And in North Carolina and in every state that I've ever worked with under the Federation of State PEBs, uh, a 12-step model for prov- health care providers is mandatory in monitoring. So our idea is if it's good enough for the cardiac surgeon – it's good enough for everybody, mm-hmm. and it's available to everybody, and it has a, the greatest chance of long-term recovery, not just abstinence for periods of time, but long-term, because you can go anywhere on the planet and go to an AA meeting, you know? And so one of the things we did was we instituted a 12-step facilitation model. We knew that Suboxone was saving lives, and that's buprenorphin, that it was a blocker, but if you took it appropriately, there was no change to your sensorium. So if they took it and they didn't get high, that was a, a very therapeutic effect. <laughs> and uh, and they weren't having the craving withdrawal that kept driving people back out to the streets. Mm-hmm. And in my county, like many counties, were hit very, very hard in North Carolina. The numbers were just astronomical. Every year going up, you know, 40,000, 45,000, 50,000, 65,000, 74,000 people a year dying. And North Carolina was one of those really hard hit. Um, so we had the medical piece, which was the Suboxone. We had the evidence-based model. And we had the social influences where we mandated people to participate in a real way with a recovery community, be it Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, with a sponsor and a real home group. And we were seeing really good outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, we opened up a closed network and uh, as part of MCO. Partners asked us to be part of their network, which was a closed network at the time. Um, but our, our lobby was just completely filled with people with addiction. Mm-hmm. So we were starting to really crowd out 
our family practice, our, our patient-centered medical home population. And it was clear that we were going to have to close our medical practice because the crisis was so big. Wow. And we were one of the very few providers, and our people were doing better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. That while other people were doing the dose and go, that they were the revolving door, in and out, in and out, in and out. People were getting high at their treatment facility. People were, you know... We weren't, that was our outcomes. If it wasn't working here with us, we wanted you to go maybe to another practice, a methadone clinic, where at least you were, had to be sober enough to walk up to the window, or you had to be at least uninebriated enough to get your dose for the day. Mm -hmm. And so we were doing really well. Uh, we had added a lab, uh, we had uh, moved to a larger facility. Um, then we found out that many of our uninsured people couldn't afford the medication. So what good is is the medication, again, with this integrated process where you're looking at the biological, you're looking at the social, you're looking at the medical piece, the psychological piece. What good is the medicine if they can't afford it? Or if they're having to sell half of their prescription and maybe go back to jail so they could afford the other half and maybe not get the full benefit of the, of the dose. And so I reached out to the local pharmacist to reduce the cost of pharmacy. And they said, uh, if you're not happy with the cost – you know, create your own pharmacy, which is kind of crazy that providers out there would say, if you bring me cash, I'm going to charge you three times what the insurance company is charging. I don't have to bill a claim. I never get denied a claim. I don't have to have an extra staff person's hours to bill your claim. You're bringing quarters, dimes, nickels, pennies, dollars to get your medicine for maybe a couple of days or maybe a week, but you're not going to give them a cash discount. Mm -hmm. Now everyone knows we give cash discounts. So I decided, you know what? I really think we can open a pharmacy. I was able to open a real confirmation lab, which is three hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'll be able, maybe I'll be able to open a pharmacy. So we were able to start really look at the inputs, and I did. And anybody that comes to our program uninsured gets free medication because they shouldn't have to be scrounging around trying to find some money when they're going to a class that's five days a week. Yeah. And the same with the laboratory stuff. We have to have, just like with a hypertension, you have to have really good labs. And most of these providers out there are using a little $3 dip. They don't know if it's good or bad. They don't know if the urine is coming from there or not. They'll say, leave the urine in the, by the door, you know. And so you don't really know if they're getting better or not. And so you need good testing. You need good pharmaceuticals. You need affordable pharmaceuticals. You need peer support and others in the community that can have lived through that experience mm-hmm. so that this is a wraparound program. And so many people on MAT in our county uh, were not able to find housing. So along the way, partners asked me to open a new office, and I opened a new office in a, in a nearby county. And then I've opened another office. And so because we're doing well and people are getting better, and we're, we're using counselors and therapists who are themselves in recovery. So there's that other type of experiential knowledge, not just the clinical stuff you take a test about and not just filling in all the bubbles. So that lived experience, they're able to engage people at a better level. But it's not very good if you if they're living in a tent. Mm-hmm. If there's only so many shelters and they don't want people with medication-assisted treatment in the shelters, mm-hmm. there's only so much housing. So again, we, we opened our transitional housing units. We uh, added transportation piece. So that integrated care, back to your original question, is... Any input that needs to occur so you can get the treatment outcomes that you need. And you'd say, well, if they're abstinent, isn't that the only treatment outcome? Well, absolutely it is not for us. Uh, the, the abstinence piece, if you study addiction, is where we start. It's not the end point. The brains are literally fried. They've been hijacked with drugs for decades. Mm-hmm. So chemically, they're not responding the same. And structurally, they're not responding the same. And there needs to be a significant period of time. 
And there needs to be certain brain activity that's usually married to behavior so that we can get a new person that's resilient, that does not go back to drugs at the first stressor. And so uh, when you get clean and sober, and I'll use those terms because I'm a person in recovery, but generally we want to talk about abstinence, periods of abstinence. We can talk about recovery or we can talk about recurrent use. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are going to be some cultural terms with people in the in in recovery that were that are used, and then there's some terms that probably shouldn't be used in a clinical setting. And if I jump between those two, be patient with yeah, me. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so we wanted to look at the how we could give a true wraparound service that would include peer support, housing, transportation, laboratory testing, pharmacy, real evidence based counseling, and that way they would have the best chance possible. Because if you if you're struggling with opiate use disorder. Or you're struggling from stimulant use disorder, like these powerful methamphetamines that are coming back uh, into the community now. You can't get inpatient care. The only time you can get inpatient care uh, for anybody who is uninsured or Medicaid is generally going to be alcohol because you'll go into DTs or um, Xanax because you'll go into seizures. And usually those are really short periods of detox. So the uninsured population has the least care and they're getting the worst disease because it's getting worse and worse. And so we have found funding for some housing. We have found funding through our federal grants for all the services paid for. Medicine's paid for. The counseling's paid for. So you have to piecemeal funding together to get those people who are most in need. And what, and what good is that? You're keeping people out of prison, which is a huge, huge benefit to society. You're getting them back with their children, another huge benefit to society. You're making taxable, employable people, another benefit to society. And then ethically and morally, you're helping the people that need it the most. Mm -hmm. So we can do this for the people who are our physicians and our lawyers, and they have the, the best insurance, and they go away to the 90-day programs. They come back to real wraparound treatment. Mm -hmm. But we're not doing that for those who, who can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, we've been very, very fortunate and working very hard for federal grant for prevention in uh, Catawba County, uh, federal grant in Gaston and Lincoln County for wraparound services for people who need medication whose primary diagnosis is opiate use disorder. We're getting housing uh, pay, uh, funding from the sheriff's department to keep people out of the jail. And so, you know, this constant uh, desire to do the best that we can – uh, not have the most people and not make the most money. Mm -hmm. Earlier, before we started, we were talking about uh, what got us in this mess. And most people have seen the documentaries about these pain clinics. Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, going up and down 95 and they're giving them 90 days or more of as much medicine as they could carry back to West Virginia. Some of those same providers that were getting us into this opioid crisis are some of the same providers now that are dosing out Suboxone, dosing goes. Mm -hmm. They are doing butte me online. North Carolina has not addressed the butte me, the online mail in your urine. You'll see somebody on a video, uh, and we'll mail you your Suboxone, and, and you can sell it all over the street. So most, and, and if you look at the statistics now, it's very clear that one of the most illicitly traded and sold drugs is buprenorphine. <laughs> okay, and you say, well, why? If I mean, why are you prescribing it? If it's something that's illicitly traded and used. Well, a gun can be used by a police officer and it can be used by a criminal. And when you use the medication appropriately and you get people into the right behavioral interventions and the right psychological treatment for trauma and get them into, you know, uh, recovery homes and you do all this, they titrate off the medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody, our people generally will call us and tell us, you know, I thought I had the flu, but I actually forgot to take my buprenorphine for two days. Right. But out in the community, they don't want to be, they don't want to go through withdrawal today. They don't want to be pill sick, but they're not clean and sober. They're not in recovery. So they're still using, uh, using other substances.
substances which are endangering their lives. Alcohol, sedatives. And now we're seeing a flood of really powerful stimulants. So while you and I are seeing pretty much the the uh, turnabout of the opioid crisis, North Carolina finally saw a reduction in the o- overdose deaths because of Narcan, because of prescribing habits of doctors, because of buprenorphine and more treatment providers. What you're going to see now is a resurgence of some real powerful methamphetamine. You'll ask me back in a few years, and you'll say, you were right, mm-hmm. that the that meth is king, it's back again, just like it was in the 90s. And But everybody's coming in now to our programs with uh, a stimulant use disorder. They have Suboxone in their system. Mm. And so um, there's some real challenges here. Yeah. And I think some of the predatory providers and mercenary doctors who are trying to get 100, 200, 300 patients, dose and goes, these these treatment facilities. I think uh, North Carolina really needs to look at those because we're creating a whole other problem again. We're not making the situation better. It's a quality of care. Where are these people in this program? Who are their treatment outcomes? Mm -hmm. Anybody can get an X waiver, right? And there's been some concern about X waivers. They say, uh, so anybody can write oxycodone, but not everybody can write for suboxone. Well, it's an eight-hour online program. It's about as simple as it could be for a medical provider. The, The true test is the quality of care. You know, are they writing other drugs that are being abused like gabapentin? We're starting to see gabapentin overdose. And they're writing gabapentin for like mood disorders. All right. Gabapentin has been shown for no effect whatsoever for mood disorders. What it has been shown for is to worsen most of these conditions like mm-hmm. social anxiety. It's used very, very limited, I think, in herpatic neuralgia, very limited uh, uh, diagnoses for gabapentin. It's now the new drug of abuse. Mm-hmm. Just like Lyrica, another neuroleptic drug is a drug of abuse. And providers who are supposed to be addiction providers are writing drugs that are addi- that they're addicted to. Yeah. You know, how many providers are writing Xanax and other st- sedatives for people they're writing Suboxone for? Mm-hmm. And so they're not getting better. And uh, so I think we need to do something more comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to get back to some of the good news that you, you brought about. But before we do that, um, you know, what what is causing that? Is it – I mean, I, I just can't see – uh, the schools turning out a bunch of rogue physicians who are just like, hey, I'm going to get a bunch of pills prescribed and, and create addicts. But is it a pressure from the system that is about quantity and just just doing as much, or doing the minimum amount you need to do for as many patients? Well, there's two things. One, you don't have to have a lot of bad pr- providers to make a difference in a society. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, back in the 2000s, you know, and in and, and the late 90s, but definitely in the 2000s, we didn't have a lot of bad providers. We had some providers that did a lot of bad. So it wasn't like the 2000s produced all these really bad doctors. We had some really bad doctors that made a lot of money, and I mean millions of dollars, all right? Mm-hmm. And, I can, and, I, and I see a lot of that stuff still happening today. Two is some people don't know how to identify addiction and they don't know how to treat addiction and they don't know when they are looking at addiction. And so some of the stuff that I first did with Chris Jones here at Northwest AHEC, when we started, we're looking at risk assessment tools, one, to determine if there was addiction going on in the patient in a primary care setting, or two, is there a higher risk for writing opiates for this person? So there, those types of things are there as well that I don't want any problems. I just want to make you happy. And I just want to be a good doctor. And I know you're here crying in front of me and you're saying you're going to withdraw or you're saying this and that. And you got to take care of your kid. And you've given me so many stories of why I haven't seen you for a month for any drug test. And And the physician wants that high rating on the survey. And he wants a high rating, but he also wants to be a good person. And, And keep in mind, it's not just physicians. 
We have a lot more nurse practitioners who haven't gone to specific training. We have a lot more PAs that haven't gone to specific training. They think they have an eight-hour X waiver so that now they can write for addiction. And you ask them some really specific questions when I go to these lectures and I teach. Ask them very specific questions. They don't have the answers. You know, if you're going to treat diabetes, know about the condition and know the evidence-based models that make people better. They don't know it. Mm-hmm. And so, and that is my critique. So you have some really, truly bad doctors, and that's just a part of the game. It's nothing new, okay? The same people that had the oxycodone highway are some of the same doctors now that are having their license pulled in North Carolina for writing Suboxone inappropriately. Mm-hmm. And it, and they always make the news. And generally, after somebody has died, generally not before. Yeah. Okay. And then you have some that don't know how to treat it, and so. Now we're seeing more and more people and more and more healthcare systems, even bigger hospitals saying, oh, I think we're going to start MAT. You know, they're kind of coming to the party late when there was really, when there was a real need to really work together. Um, but what are they offering? And so I, I do think that the governor and I do think our, our either city council uh, and, and counties should look at, at a real mechanism to judge the quality of care. Mm-hmm. We don't have that addiction treatment. Addiction treatment has always been outside very often of the regular healthcare system. Right. And it went, it goes all the way back to back in the day when I went to PA school and there was a psychology, psychiatry uh, course in the residency. If they got a, an addiction, make sure you know where the AA meetings are. If they, if they, you know, and so now, uh, and you know, it was only last year that we finally have board certified addiction specialist residencies and the only way now to get to that board certification isn't a cobblestone way of being a internist or a family medicine doctor or a psychiatrist and going through it. Now it's through the residency program. Mm-hmm. So just like back in the nineties where we finally had emergency department residencies for the first time and prior, it was just a family doc that jumped in yeah. to the back of the hospital. Uh, now we're having some real in American society of addiction medicine will be the gold standard. And, uh, and if, People aren't involved with that organization if, and they're providing care. I think it's wrong. Mm-hmm. I think they have to really – it's a serious disease. People are dying from this disease even while they're in treatment because they're, uh, the wrong models are being applied or they're not be- – there's no real fidelity to the models. Mm-hmm. They're saying they're applying this model and they're not. Is there any correlation between like age of physician, like years in practice to those who have been doing harm? I mean, I, what I'm getting at is they come out – uh, presumably with a lot of debt and maybe there, the incentive is to quickly pay that off. I can't speak to that because I haven't really studied. I, I try to, uh, I know what you're saying and, and that would be something interesting to look at. I'm much more concerned with shutting them down. Yeah. Uh, I'm not as, you know, I, I think, I think there are good people with debt and bad people with debt. I just, I, I see these predatory providers. Uh, I see the dose and go. I see the, you know, and they have, uh, online programs and these people are getting worse they're leaving good programs often when there's a the first stressor the first challenge where you could work with them because they generally will come to us for medication which i always tell people uh, i'm part of a lot of different organizations i've gotten up in some of my uh, uh more of the counseling psychotherapeutic associations and argued i have no problem putting a little buprenorphine on the line to bring people into a good quality uh, behavioral program mm-hmm. and so People will come to us for that. But when we're doing the behavioral interventions and there's a first stressor, if they were anchored in our program, maybe they don't have – they're not in our housing or they realize they see that there's an easier way to get the medicine. They will pretty much jettison. 
and then they'll go back out. Life gets worse. They may lose their children. They've lost their job. Then they come back and they realize that that's not working for them. Mm-hmm. They may not come back. You know, it breaks my heart when people, you know, jettison to these online programs or these predatory doctors and I see them in the being arrested in, in, in the newspaper. Yeah. And then they get out of that and they're like, you know what? I'm ready now. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what I think that North Carolina should look at. I have, I have the pleasure and the honor to sit with the, the governor on an opioid panel in Catawba County and speak to this, the quality care that we have to deliver, which is an integrated model. It's a biopsychosocial and some say spiritual model. It has to include all those medical interventions. It has to include all those behavioral interventions. Yeah. And also the psychological ones. Yeah, I think that's important. I think that would work in, in a lot of other afflictions, I guess, obesity. It and, works in and, every medical condition. Yeah. You give me one and I'll talk to you about it. You know, uh, there has to be a mindset with diabetes or hypertension when you're speaking to, let's say, an 85-year-old retiree who has diabetes and A1C is creeping up. You say, well, what's the behavioral? What's the, what's the psychological? You know, does she want to see her granddaughter get married? Right. And then that might create enough motivation that the snicker bar, you know, or the bag of chips doesn't look so good. Mm-hmm. So there's that, that piece yeah. that, that might create some of the behavioral in, incentives to get off the couch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe, and you say, well, what about that spiritual piece? Well, there is a component of that because that's mm-hmm. a deeper sense of meaning and purpose yeah. for all of us. And so that does re-injuvenate re- in, in, us. That for people in, in, in recovery, they'll say, well, what if there's no God? You know, what if there's atheism or agnosticism? It's, it's finding meaning and purpose. Right. And when you look at, let's say, the recovering addict, meaning and purpose is drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. That's the higher power. That's the God that they're doing anything for. And all you have to do is reframe this. Yeah. And find something else that you can give meaning and purpose to. Something else that's more than you that might work. Yeah. And then look at those people. And we all know support groups work. Mm-hmm. If you and I are trying to diet, let's say we're going to go on, and we're going to run five miles a day. If we commit together, we got a better chance because I'm going to meet you every morning. And you know you're gonna, yeah. I'm going to get a call from you if I don't show up at 7 in the morning. That accountability. Yeah. yeah. But if we've got 10 of us. And we, we really make a commitment in a lot of different ways to each other to, to, to find that, that goal. Mm-hmm. It really, that, that powerful social influence. Yeah. You know, if I always surround myself with you guys. I'm going to watch my diet more, you know, just like if you go to church. If you go to church, your language does change. I don't care who you are. Yeah. Your language changes in a church setting as, as elsewhere. We are, we are greatly influenced by other people. And that's where you started is this kind of influence of our social component. Um, the one point that I can agree about addiction is you can be in a group of drunky junkies and a group of alcoholics and you could be acting out that behavior and that behavior flows nicely with that other school of fish. But there is a sense of isolation. You mm-hmm. are still locked alone in your brain. You can lose that with uh, with community. Mm-hmm. Uh, while there's a group of people together, there's no community when it comes to drugs and alcohol. Uh, but it definitely comes with addiction. Mm-hmm. But there is definitely that kind of community in, in the recovery-based models of AA and NA, a sense of belonging and yeah. purpose and sense of self within that that can be mirrored off of other people. So, well, I think I think you know I've said that many times as we've lost um, the you know a lot of times you can equate it to a loss of meaning and purpose, and people just feel isolated they feel like uh you know okay what what gives me meaning and purpose let me go be a keyboard warrior on facebook about politics or something Mm -hmm. and that that somehow gives me 
Uh, but it, 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 it kind of, you see these people and they get real negative and it gets bitter and then it just devolves into just, you know, they're socially isolated because they have a different addiction, you That's know? True. And, and, um, I was, I've written about, uh, smartphone addiction. I've written about, and we do see a lot of cross addiction where people get off substance use disorder and then go straight to gambling or go straight to internet mm-hmm. or go straight to pornography or, shoplifting. Yeah. And so there is this deeper part of the brain, the mesolimbic part that's been hook, fish hooked, if you will. And that's the same part that you're talking about where you can, where people say they lose themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's the deeper reptilian part of the brain uh, that we're talking about. And that's why it looks for many people um, that addicts are sociopaths because they can lie to you. They seem unemotional because it, it really does uh, hijack the limbic system, mm-hmm. and they will use all that analytical ability for the prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. to get dope, to yeah. lie, to manipulate, to change, because it's really deep down in that mesolimbic system. That is not the real human. Talk about mm-hmm. drug ve- drug fiend and zombie. That is not that person. Yeah. Uh, many people will never know their own parents because that, that addict is not the real person. Yeah. And so what we do with a real wraparound program is try to get them first containment of use mm-hmm. and then move them into some real recovery skills and behaviors that allow for longer term recovery. And then we can work on the cognitive and the psychological. And so you can look at a period of time to really work with somebody who has severe uh, use disorder. Yeah. Well, you know, I understand that the deep trauma and and the different reasons uh, people look to substance abuse and or look to substance for that. Um, the intention of feeling better, um, you know, the behavior's bad, but the intention's good. Um, how much of that do you get when you talk to patients about, um, you know, how society values us now? I mean, we're a consumer, materialistic society. Um, it seems like we're trending towards agnostic or atheism, you know, we're losing this component of spirituality. And so um, there, that seems to, to me to drive people towards nihilism and, and like lack of meaning and lack of purpose. And we've lost the manufacturing base and, and just the, we, we've created this environment where if you don't go to college, you're a loser, you know, and, and the shop class is gone from schools. And there's just a whole lot of things that we've allowed to just happen um, based on very, well, for various reasons. But, you know, the, the notion that everyone can learn to code is not true. Um, <laughs> and not many people want to sit behind a computer all day. And, and so we're, we've, we're we're running low on occupations to keep people occupied, to keep the hands from being idle, which, you know, can lead to all kinds of things. So, I mean, any reaction Two to points. That? One, I just want to make sure we're on the same page when it comes to our language, because language is very important. Uh, every now and then somebody will go through pregnancy and deliver a baby and be on buprenorphine, and the baby will have some withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, some un- undereducated people or misinformed people, even physicians and healthcare, uh, I, head of public health will say they're addicted babies. Babies aren't addicted. Babies are dependent, right? Mm-hmm. So the language is very important because the baby's not giving up all the diaper money to run out and go get more dope. Okay. The baby is dependent. People can be dependent on drugs because of chronic pain or what other issue and they can be addicted. And the addicted has a real clinical diagnosis and you have to meet certain criteria. So, there are going to be many different groups of people that have trauma or stressors or lack of meaning. But nobody who's an addict chooses to be an addict. You can have a drink 
and I can have a drink, there will not be the same outcome. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's just like, I don't choose to be allergic to peanuts and I don't choose to have an allergic reaction. And so there are uh, some pre uh, predicators that if you will, of early childhood trauma, which may predispose to, to having addiction. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people go through a lot of bad things and never become addicts. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's not that they had better choices. It's that once certain people use drugs it literally fish hooks them. Mm -hmm. It is not their brain. It's not the sensorium. The obsessional thinking, the compulsive behavior takes over like a sneeze. It's just kind of like saying, well, some people choose schizophrenia and some people don't. <laughs> right. And you laugh, but it's the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. Some people choose bipolar and some people don't. But we don't have a problem with their brain disorder. We understand that it's a true brain disorder, but we don't understand addiction is. We somehow underneath that think it's a choice and a moral failing. I see. And so one of the biggest things that I have a challenge with is changing the language so that we can change really how we conceptualize. Mm -hmm. And you see the fatal flaw. Yeah. Okay. When this person takes a drink, they may not get off of that road until they're dead or 10 years later in a jail trying to get clean. And many people will tell you, I had that first drink at a college party and this is what happened to me. And I didn't get off that, that crazy train until 10 years later. Mm -hmm. It literally took over my brain, and I was not the same man, and it took me years to get back. That's the first thing I'd like to speak of. I feel, and this is a side issue, but the, the, the greatest thing my ever sponsor ever told me 20 years ago was, Corey, I know you. I want you to tell, tell the group in AA and NA that you're a grateful recovering alcoholic at it. And I'll say, <laughs> grateful? I'm not grateful, man. He said, well, just say it because you might need to fake it till you make it. So I had to fake a lot of gratitude in the beginning because I was in such a hole. And he just told me, stop digging and we're going to get out of it. So the idea was not initially, I thought, well, maybe he wants to be grateful I'm sober. What generally later on I found out was I was supposed to be grateful that I was actually an addict is that because of addiction and because I went to a treatment program like mine, and that's what I modeled it after, and, and I was forced to go to the recovery community, I was forced to learn skills and behaviors. I was forced to re really, really connect with ethics and moral that I could really self-identify with. And I had to find meaning and purpose in my life. Otherwise, I would go back out and use. Mm -hmm. And if I use, I will die. Mm -hmm. And that's a proven fact because I put myself in dangerous situations. I use large amounts, and I don't care about my life. And so unlike the person who's not addicted, they are usually struggling from the cradle to the grave to find meaning and purpose and gratitude and happiness. Mm -hmm. But if you ever roll into an AA meeting as a, as a visitor, you'll see a lot of happy, joyful people. And um, if you're restless, irritable, and discontent, you're generally not working the program. And so <laughs> there is a true promise that you will be happy, joyful, and, and it does occur that way. But we have a real systematic approach to, to anchor us in with a community, to apply these steps in our life, to work on self, not work on everybody else. You identified a lot of things outside yourself you'd like to change. Mm -hmm. I have no power over that. I can't even control you. You could turn the mic off right now. All I can really work on today is my effort, and that's all I need to work on. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole nother mindset. And, you know, that is perception. You know, I've worked with people who were amputees. I have, I have one lady that came in and she had uh, an amputation, but she had one good leg. She was very negative and painful and bitter and she had some morbid obesity and, you know, and all this. And, you know, overworking, working with her over, the, over some time, we got really grateful that she had the one leg because so many people at the clinic that she had to go to, 
didn't have either leg. So mm. she could at least ambulate into the shower by herself and she could clean herself. And it was much easier for her to get around than those other people. That kind of motivation allowed her to start losing a little bit of weight and getting a prosthetic and getting out of the chair. Mm -hmm. And so it is a whole nother mindset that I would not be the same man if it weren't for addiction. I would yeah. have no real meaning and purpose the way I do today. Yeah. My, my life today is about helping the next suffering addict. Yeah. And anything that I have done since the course of that is trying today to make it right. Yeah. Looking at what I have done that's wrong, judging myself and taking my own inventory, and what can I do today? And for today, it meant running, driving through the rain from Hickory, North Carolina to talk to you to maybe connect with somebody, in, you know, that a, a, about addiction. Yeah. You know, and that's all I have to do today. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if I'll be here tomorrow, and I, that's not really my concern. You know, and I can't change my past, but I can definitely do something today. And that's a whole other mindset. So when you look at and individuals in recovery, they can make a decision whether to code or go into manufacturing. They can make a decision to be happy for where they are in life or are, are very ne negative. Mm -hmm. But for us, negative thinking is a driver back to use. Mm -hmm. Resentment is the number one offender that yeah. will drive us right back. And so we don't allow that. We have to take a whole nother mindset. And, and that really works for us. Mm -hmm. And it's a better way of life. What you're talking about, a lot of that negativity, that things you can't change is like a bowling ball you won't let go of that's dragging to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. And what we can do is, is there something you can do today? Yeah. You know, and that's what we're going to focus on. Yeah. And that, that drives us. And when you talk to people in long-term recovery, you get that sense they are not like everybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can see it in your energy and, and your passion about this, that, that, and how you reframe it all and, and, you know, that, that you're out there making a difference in this space. And I think that you said something earlier, uh, uh, about someone who doesn't have an addiction, but they're still like addicted to their misery they're, and the from struggle. From the cradle to the grave. Yeah, and they're just they're six just, figures wanting to put a bullet in their head. And I ask them when they come in, "Can you give me a list of things you're grateful for?" Maybe two things. Mm -hmm. You know, you take me. I'll I can feel hundreds of things yeah. from my feet, from my hands. I can see you. I can hear you. I'm not just figuring the pain. Yeah, I don't yeah. have a colostomy bag. I'm, I I lived through cancer. I lived through addiction. Right. I lived through trauma. I mean, you can go through so many things, a roof on my head, electric. You say, electric. I am so grateful for my electric bill yeah. because it has my name on it. My <laughs> checks don't bounce. Right. If you ever gone without electric for a few hours, you'll wish you had some. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. we have so much to be grateful for. Grateful for what we have. Grateful for what we don't have to suffer. And uh, if you woke up with only the things that you were truly grateful for, what would you wake up with, honestly? Yeah. You yeah. know? You know, and there's a, and this, these are universal concepts. These aren't yeah. new concepts. There's always somebody that has always said, if you're not happy with your shoes, ask the guy who doesn't have feet. You know, and these are universal concepts, but the evidence-based model, which is 12-step facilitation and that recovery, that transitioning out of treatment into long-term recovery uh, uses universal concepts that are being applied for the addict. Yeah. Okay. This is universal. This isn't anything new, but they're packaged in a unique way. Everyone talks about the 12 steps as being very cultish. And everybody talks about the 12 steps as being almost magical. And none of that is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. We find a community of lived experience. Right. And we use universal concepts in a, in, a, in, a, in a language that we all understand. And it's no different than any family or any church home or any society or any race or any group. We're just a very specific group. We're, 
we really do shed all that other outside stuff mm-hmm. when it comes to politics or income or race. Yeah. You know, we really focus on the lived experience of getting through addiction. And if we can just focus on applying those steps today so that we can live yeah. through today without using, helping the next person coming in, we're good. Yeah. And that's why I can go into any of these rooms around the world and I don't know anybody's name, but I know I'm home. Mm-hmm. And that's a really amazing feeling. And I don't know that anybody else has ever found it. Yeah. You know, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob created this over 80 years ago. And they never thought that they would create, help 50 million people. They never thought it would be a publication in 26 languages and on every continent. You know, they just wanted to stay sober today. And they said, you know, if this works for me and it works for you, we better find somebody else because it'll keep working. Yeah. And if you ever go and delve into the history, it's a very fascinating history yeah. about how they created an, an empirical model of treatment before they ever had these words. Yeah, yeah. And before there was ever behaviorism, before there ever, when they still thought it was just a moral failing and not a medical condition, mm-hmm. these people turned around the world. And this model has been used for so many other process addictions. It's been yeah. used for so many. And piecemeal, whenever I watch other people's lectures or I go to other talks and stuff, and I hear about different components of gratitude or CBT or all these other models that are always being thrown out, motivational interviewing, all these mindfulness, mm-hmm. all of it, I can find all these pieces in a very big empirical model that has been around for over 80 years. Yeah, yeah. I've read the book and been to a few meetings. I've actually dragged a few friends and family to them as well. And one of the things I, you know, when you go for the first time, you you kind of have this, oh, I'm not like these people or I'm not, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not powerless. And, and, and But I, what, what happened to me was every time I heard a story, uh, even though, even if it was someone like, oh, well, not them again, you know, it was, you always got some little nugget that was, you saw yourself in, you know, whether, you know, it was, you know, I wasn't never in the gutter, you know, in, in, you know, to that extreme, but you always found something no matter how, uh, you know, if you're not careful, you might learn something kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, so I would listen and I'm like, wow. Okay, I, I recognize that behavior, you know, in, in these little bits and pieces. So after, after an hour, um, there would be some nugget I would leave with it that changed me, that, mm-hmm. that really made me think deeply about my, my own behaviors. Imagine if you were living in this community for decades, how the change would occur if you were open to the change. And I often will tell people, uh, you know, I've been to a bar mitzvah, doesn't make me Jewish. And the idea is you can visit Disney and not be Mickey. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that kind of idea. And that, that's what I tell people whenever they go through their training and they say, well, I went to a meeting. I'm like, you know, going to a meeting yeah. does not. And so to have lived it and even to have studied and read it because people have written books about it is not having lived it. Mm-hmm. There's something truly amazing about having lived it. And, and so and that's why I think this could work for everybody. We have Codependency Anonymous and many people find themselves in CODA. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a. Al-Anon was a sister version by Bill's wife uh, for those people who didn't leave them. Any healthy person would have left the alcoholic, right? Yeah, yeah. Any healthy person would have taken the kids and never talked to them again, but they were addicted and their whole worlds were consumed. And so, and later on, uh, that there's another organization called Codependency Anonymous. And we know codependency, and we generally have a, a general idea about the personality disorder. It's a very nonspecific one, but the idea is there. And so if you lived it, but just imagine if you were the addict to the alcoholic. And that's the most fascinating thing to me is that there is, our brains are not one piece. 
And if you hit somebody on the side of the head, you can figure that out pretty damn quickly is that they can't speak, but they can understand language or they can understand language, but they can't say a word. Mm -hmm. And so if you ever study any of neurology, you can start to figure out that the brain is different pieces. Addiction is a different part of the whole brain. And you can really, after you've been working in the field a while, you can actually see the addict brain fighting against the rest of the brain that's trying to move into recovery. And Dr. Paul Early, a really good friend of mine, has created a book called Recovery Mind Therapy. And he talks about that in really good terms. And uh, the addict will literally revolt about ever going to a meeting. And I really believe on some level they know it's going to work. Because mm-hmm. I remember my sponsor telling me about I had to go to a meeting and I just started to cry. He was describing his life and what it was and how it changed. And I thought... And I, I reflected later on about why I was crying. I, I think I, on a deep level, I knew I was never going to use again. Mm-hmm. The one thing, and the brain has been rewired. Uh, down in the mesolimbic system, that reptilian part of the brain, that's where sex is very important for the continuation of the species. Food is very important, the continuation of the, of the animal itself. Uh, you know, salt and sugar and dopamine is really affected in these areas. And that's why you get this wonderful ping of like 30 uh, nanograms of dopamine, you know, or... Uh, for sex or for food or chocolate cake. But when you hit heroin, the levels go up to 1,400. Wow. You know, those deathly levels. They go up to 1,400. And so the idea is, and once you start to take those high, high levels, the body will auto-regulate down where the only thing that will create any dopaminic response in the brain mm-hmm. is going to be heroin. And that becomes your identity. That's uh, it. Yeah. You rewire. And the brain really feels like, you know, and there was a time when I was looking at my career, I'm like, is it the career or the drugs, and I had to choose the drugs. I left my career. Is it the family, and is it shelter? Or is it, and I had to lo- leave my family and left shelter and left everything behind. I didn't care if I had a car, didn't care if I had a home, I didn't care if I practiced ever again. Mm-hmm. You lose everything, but the only thing for today is very animalistic because that's the area of the brain that it hijacks. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's hard to start to you know, bring it back to the rest of the brain and, and start to really change it. And that's that part of the brain that says, oh my God, this guy is your enemy. That first sponsor, I'm surprised I hit him with my car, mm-hmm. you know, because that guy was a true enemy of my attic brain. And my attic brain knew it. But I really felt like because of this, mom, I really felt like I was going to relapse. I was just going to go ahead. I was so desperate. We talk about God. And you can spell God, G-O-D, gift of desperation. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. You know, and, and so I had that gift of desperation where I was willing to do whatever. And I didn't think it was going to work. But I kind of wanted to show him that I was going to relapse anyway. And I went to the 90 meetings, 90 days. I went to my counseling. Back then, we didn't have Suboxone. But they used to throw a lot of other uh, drugs at you, like Prozac. It had absolutely no effect whatsoever, I'm sure, on on serotonin and dopamine levels. But, you know, I did what I was told because I had a gift of desperation. And uh, when it talked about the, the finding a spiritual component, I just knew this was about the Bible. And he said, well, what about a, some good orderly direction, G-O-D? And I could definitely use that because I've been living through chaos. Mm-hmm. So we're moving from chaos, which drives addiction, to some good orderly direction. And then I found a group of drunks, G-O-D, and a group of druggies. And they were doing something that I couldn't do at Stay Clean Today. So my sponsor really was that first higher power. He was doing what I couldn't do. He had in, in somehow uh, brought some hope into my life some motivation to just try because he had lived through it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was what I needed. Yeah, You know, I had been through treatment. I had been to psychiatrists. I had done all these other things. But a treatment program that really intertwined with this recovery piece in the community, this kind of – and now today I think it, they call it recovery-oriented system of care. I love that because 
when I was the only guy doing a lot of 12 step facilitation in my county, true 12 step facilitation, and everybody else is, you know, kind of balking at it, we've all come back around to what works. And mm-hmm. so now we have paid peer support specialists in the community in, in North Carolina, which is a new invention, a new idea for certification and recovery coaches. And we have recovery oriented system of care because we know. What, well, let's just do what works. It doesn't matter yeah. where it comes from. Well, I, th- I think that part, you know, people scoff at the religious part of it or, or the God part you know, because it's like whatever you want to call it. Um, that's why I like it sort of, sort of generic, but, um, it's a reframing and a rediscovery of your own potential. That's fine. You know, you, you can take the same person in that same pew and her concept of God is not the same from age eight to 80. And you could take 80 different people in that church and they could hear the same sermon and they will hear something very, very different Mm -hmm. because of an individual perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I don't care. We all have a different concept of God. So the idea of good orderly direction or group of drunks or or some, the 12 steps itself, some ethical model that you adhere to, whether it's the the commandments or whatever, the idea for me is what works and the idea is transition from what is not working yeah. to what is working. You can fill in the, the rest of yourself when you're clean and sober and healthy and positive and productive. That is that is what we do mm-hmm. as human beings. But, you know, the concept of God 2,000 years ago was not what it is today. So this idea of a static kind of black and white concept is fine for some people, but it's not as accurate as I want to believe. Now, this most of what we're talking about today is my own personal perspective. Yeah. Uh, and I hope that I've been able to clearly delineate what is a 12-step model, what is truly integrated practice, and what is my impression and my take as I deliver the 12-step facilitation model, my own clinical impression, as opposed to what I believe personally. Mm-hmm. And so I hope that for anybody listening to they, they can tease apart all of that. But um, if what you're doing isn't working, why not try something that's working? And yeah. that's all he said to me. Yeah. He said, your best effort got you here. <laughs> your very best effort in yeah. life. And I had all these letters behind my name. Yeah. This old man wore his belt way up here, right up right up, up under his bib belly, right? <laughs> he had big, big Coke bottle glasses. He wore polyester from head to toe. And I thought, oh, my God, how the great have fallen. This is my guy. <laughs> and um, I'll tell you, uh, but he was retired, so I was his only job. Mm-hmm. And I was in my 20s. And I tell you, he was like me, stink on whatever. Mm-hmm. And he stuck to me. And, uh, you know, a 24-hour – you want to talk about a 24-hour wraparound program. Yeah. That was a 24-hour wraparound program. Yeah. I would call him. I finally was employable for a little while. And I, he said uh, – I, I worked all day and I'd come home. I said, Bill, I'm so tired. His name was Bill Hutchinson. He passed away. And uh, he said, I was – I'm so – I was so tired. Well, I can't go to a meeting tonight. He said, you used to – Used to use till three or four in the morning and still work all day and then use again. So I'm coming to get you. <laughs> and so, you know, it was that kind of, no matter what I said, he, he had the slogan, the concept, the tactic, the strategy, the mm-hmm. skills. And this was an old man that had very little education and training. This was an old man that only had lived in and gotten clean and sober through, uh, the program. And this was the key for me. Mm-hmm. So if there was a way through the 12-step facilitation model that I can incorporate medication, pharmacy, laboratory testing, if this was the guy, this kind of model, and if it needed housing, we'll do that. If it needed transportation, we'll do that. But if that was the underlying concept, mm-hmm. you know, this would be better. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I see. I see that out, out there, but it's it's far and few between. Mm-hmm. It's far and few between. We got so many people lining up this morning for a little dose and go on their way. 
We got so many people that are making their life worse and they're sitting in treatment. Mm -hmm. You know, we got so many people ending up in prison and the the one number one treatment and the number one psychiatric provider in the country are prisons. Yeah. So there are some real problems there. Uh, so I continue to advocate for quality care. I continue to advocate for appropriate funding. And, uh, you know, and venues like this allow me to do that. Well, it's, you know, we, we talked about tennis when we were walking up here. And I, I just had this analogy that, um, you know, who do you want to learn from? A pro who's been playing the game for for 20 years? Or do you want to learn from someone who hit against the wall for a few times and watched a few videos? Or read a book and never picked up a racket. Right. And so the lived experience is the, you know, who do you want to learn golf from? Somebody that read in a book or somebody swung, swung club. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so I feel, at least with our program, our people are, we hire people, clinicians, counselors, and peer support with lived experience. Mm -hmm. Because if you, if I'm doing an assessment or if I'm meeting for the first time and you know I'm also, I also have addiction. First of all, the level of engagement is very different. And I can read lots of little tales that you don't even know you're throwing out that you can't read in a book. Mm -hmm. There is an intuition about knowing somebody because you lived through it, that it's very, very different. Mm -hmm. And that means I know better than the drug tests very often, if you've used or not, if, I, if I'm working with you. And so that's absolutely a very important part of this. And, and that's also the same thing we tell people when they go out into the community and find sponsorships. Mm -hmm. You know, and you want somebody that's been doing this for 20 years or someone just, you know, just got clean and sober. You know, and uh, but you got to go to the right provider. You don't take your your car to uh, you know a, a guy that builds houses. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to take it to the right provider. And so sometimes pre providers who have no real experience in training are offering addiction treatment. Yeah, and I mean there are many social workers who go through their training, many psychologists who go through their training, and many LPCs that have no real mandatory requirement. You can be a psychologist in North Carolina and go through the training, get board certified, and have no real specific training in addiction. Mm -hmm. Addiction is a very different animal. Mm -hmm. And so what we like about North Carolina is there is a real specific license track through the practice board for addiction specialists. And that these other providers like social workers and psychologists and others can also get very specific training and licensure in addiction. Mm -hmm. And so North Carolina is really above the market. There's not a national credential. Unfortunately, there's not... Uh, a national per se uh, certification process or is one that's international that most states adhere to, but not like social workers. Mm -hmm. You can't easily move between states, but that's changing. And hopefully so that once you get uh, licensed and trained in North Carolina, it may be hard to move to New York. Mm -hmm. And so some of that types of those types of things need to probably change in the, in the field. Yeah. Well, I, I've learned a lot sitting here listening to you. Um, the reframing for me has been, uh, uh, real eye-opening. I mean, I can see a lot of providers that um, see a, a, an addict and just, you know, are heavily biased and judgmental and just say, oh, just go get clean. You know, you just need an occupation or you just mm -hmm. need this. And I haven't thought about it as, as just, you know, taking over. Throw some Suboxone at them if they have that yeah. flavor in. Why are you still using? Yeah, exactly. What's wrong with you? Yeah, what's wrong with you? But um, let's get into back to the good news. Um, what are some of the metrics that have, have moved the needle? I mean, where are we in North Carolina? I mean, you said we're kind of – We've seen the plateau of the opioid crisis, and yeah, the overdose deaths have, mm -hmm. have finally uh, taken us a, a slight shift. It does not mean we're not still in a crisis. You know, anything over seventy thousand is still not good. Uh, that is a lot of deaths in this country, and North Carolina is still in an opioid crisis. Um, 
But I think the availability and use of rescue Narcan, I think the comfortability of first responders to use it um, is better. And so that if you can save somebody today, you got maybe a better chance of getting the treatment. We've got mobile crisis units that are showing up to these rescue sites so that they can start to talk about referral sources, which is very good. Uh, Project Lazarus is an amazing model that started in Wilkes County. I guess you know about Project Lazarus. It's in 35, 34, 35 different states. One of our prevention grants is partnered with Project Lazarus. And, uh, and so in that wheel that he has pushed, uh, Fred has pushed throughout the country is, you know, the different inputs. You want to look about true evidence-based models. You can take a disease process and look at integrated care and look at the inputs. And if you want to look at the true community model, you'd want to look at the part for hospital and the ERs. You'd want to look at uh, um, law enforcement, the community, churches, schools. You want to look at providers like provider education, which is what we've done with Northwest AHEC. You want to look at the treatment providers themselves with addiction. You want to look at harm reduction as a separate piece, and that would be your rescue Narcan. You want to look at your what we call methadone clinics, the OTPs, the opioid treatment programs. Mm-hmm. And so there's all these pieces, and if you have all these inputs, you're going to get a better treatment outcome. Mm-hmm. And so in our communities, and that's some of the pieces that the North, North Carolina has looked at the STOP Act, which has really looked at providers looked at mandatory training. There's a change in the feeling about prescribing narcotics. I'm, um, there's more education. I don't know there's application about screening tools prior to that initial dose. I think it's finally fallen into the dental as well. We have to keep in mind that physicians, PAs, and nurse practitioners aren't the only ones writing narcotics. That vets, sometimes we are, we're seeing that animals were being harmed for opiates by the owners. Hmm. We see that dentist and overprescribing in dental. And so there's a, a, an awakening, I think, across the board that, that a lot of us were stoking the problem and didn't know it in the healthcare uh, provider a- area. So that's one big important thing. Uh, I think sometimes we have to be just honest that uh, border security does have a part that a lot of really powerful fentanyl and heroin comes across the border. Uh, there were some initial challenges back in 2015, 2014, when most states were starting to tap down. North Carolina was a little late on tapping down on its physician prescribing. But there was a lot of tapping down so that, that people were going back out into the streets. Keep in mind, though, people were running out of prescriptions very early most of the time anyway. Mm-hmm. But this uh, shift, abrupt change to illicit fentanyl caused a huge spike in overdose deaths. And norfentanyl and stuff called ghosts that was hitting the streets. Even in North Carolina, we were finding these powerful mixes of norfentanyl, fentanyl, and heroin that people were using that they couldn't even get the syringe out of their arm and they were dead. Powerful. That, you know, fentanyl thrown in a bunch of other stuff. If you got that one little spot of fentanyl that was too much, it wasn't broken down, you were going to die that day. And so we see a lot of this, uh, these changes there. Um, But like I said earlier, now that we have a shift away from prescribing, now we have a shift with a lot of the borders. We're looking, people are starting to look who, if you're addicted and you're going through withdrawal, some people are shifting back to very powerful uh, methamphetamine, powerful stimulants. And so certain areas and certain uh, programs that we have, we're just seeing a lot of really powerful. Mm-hmm. They have Suboxone on board, but really the, the, the thing that is challenging them is a stimulant use disorder like methamphetamine. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so looking to the future now, I mean, I've, I've kind of peripheral 
peripherally kept up with uh, like maps.org and some of the research they're using, you know, MDMA or ecstasy and ibogaine and the DMT therapies, the psilocybin, all these things to kind of shortcut. Because what you described is this holistic, integrative care, but it's it seems to be very costly to and, and with a lot of people and resources to do this and it sounds like a great model is it are, you think there will be one day a magic dose or something that will just cure? i think the magic dose wish got us in this mess okay and constantly giving drugs to fix drug addiction is like is like burning out fires now maybe you can burn out a fire i don't know and maybe you know there is going to be some magic vaccine but you're still going to have all the angst and problems that you mentioned earlier on about the economy and employment and losing t- touch with others and smartphone addiction and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. So while uh, pharmaceutical companies are very eager to put onto the market more and more drugs to cure drug addiction, and I welcome any of those ancillary things, the accoutrement, if you will, of what we do. But to be perfectly honest with you, evidence-based treatment is affordable. Some of the inputs that we offer are being offered at the severest level of disease when it's gone so bad that there's nothing else. But housing out in a community off a little jail fund is much cheaper than prison. Yeah. And it's much cheaper than an inpatient facility. And it's much cheaper than going to 90 days in Malibu and using on the way back. Mm -hmm. And so the difference is when we transition people out of our programs, They go from an individual counselor and a small little treatment group, an eight or nine treatment group. They smoothly transition to a sponsor and a home group. There is no cost to that individual to be in that recovery community the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. And the proviso is to not use. The proviso is not to find something. If you need something at the end of the day to make your life okay, we believe you should change your life. Yeah. Okay? And there's a big difference there. There's a conceptual difference about total abstinence or we just don't have the right dose. And that's the problem. When I go to a lot of my ASAM uh, conferences, there is a real focal point on the newest drugs that get people off drugs. Yeah. And I go on my listservs and I have to – I love my friends that help me a lot. They're, I think those are nice inputs just like a car might be good for some people or a house might be good. These are some things that are probably needed. And But when I go to my behavioral conferences like NADAC, um, there's this a revulsion to medications of any kind. Mm-hmm. So for us – Early in treatment, it's like diabetes. You might need a little medicine, but if we can get it off the couch and get your diet right, you may be able to put the medicine down forever. Maybe not. And so I think the medicines are good. I don't think that should be the focal point. It should be medication-assisted treatment. But the treatment should be a person-centered biopsychosocial mechanism, all right? Not just another dose. And, and you can, and I know that people are trying all these different drugs and they're bringing back many drugs of abuse to find, you know, and that's fine. <laughs> that's not really my forte. Um, we have a very specific model, but looking for that magic pill is probably what got us in this mess. You know, you got, you got, well, almost what, 95% of the opiates use in this country. Okay. The whole world, 7 billion people have chronic pain. Mm-hmm. People in Indonesia are working until they're in their 80s with chronic pain, mm-hmm. but we're the only country. That uses so much of the drugs, using you know, and I, the statistics are always changing. But generally, like ninety something percent of all the drugs, recreational drugs in the world, are used here. Mm. So that the mental idea of finding another drug, you know, we use all the antidepressants, you know, we use most all the narcotic pain medications. Mm-hmm. Then most of the dental procedures in Sweden and Finland don't use any narcotics whatsoever. 
but we're here handing it hand over fist. Yeah. So I have to, I, I, I am always cautious about the newest drug and the newest method. AA and NA worked before anything else did. So if you have something that truly works, use it. Mm-hmm. If you have something that will help, whether that's probation, parole, whether that's child protective services, whether that's a little suboxone, whatever you can do, whether it's the job or the wife leaving you, whatever you can do to anchor that person in a model that works, I'm okay with. Right. But I wouldn't focus on the other things that anchor them in that model. I would focus on a real model that would transition into long-term life recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, you mentioned something there about, or just the fact that we use so much, so many drugs in our in our country let's find another drug well i mean that well it also uh (laughs) you know it gets back to the core of what is american culture you know Mm -hmm. what is it you know we're in the melting pot that means we don't have we we have every culture and yet no real uh uh, common experience i mean what are the common experiences that we as americans and in our treatment model we have a common experience right well which literally melts away all that other stuff and so, and that's what's wonderful about the treatment model is that you may have a different political affiliation, you may have a different racial identity, you may have this, you may have that, it's a different sexual orientation, uh, but none of that stuff matters. And that's why that kind of what's fundamental is essential if you're going to live today. Yeah. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter who you voted for if you're going to die of overdose. Right. It doesn't matter, you know, how you self-identify if you're going to mm-hmm. die of overdose. And so this identity for those persons in recovery has, has melted away all that other stuff yeah. At least for that, you know, for the most part. Well, that's kind of what I'm getting at. I mean, the common experience, it seems like, for a lot of Americans is addiction. It may be, yeah. At least 10 to 15 percent of the population is definitely going to be addiction. Right. And I think many people could benefit. I, I think it, it may be much greater, um, but w- if you look at stuff like mild to moderate rather than what we generally look at as severe, mm-hmm. if you look at the di- diagnostic criteria, I think there's a lot of undetected that many people from the cradle to the grave, you know, not from the cradle, but essentially it's yeah. drinking ages to, you know, a couple of drinks every day, a couple of drinks yeah. every day, make him cope. I have a, a problem with a wife, take a drink to cope. Yeah. You know, smoking, antidepressants, always using something. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot people, of high functioning. Yeah. And so there's a, I, there's probably a lot more. And so I think, and I don't, that's not really my job is, is to be a culture critic or, or to get out of that uh, or how to change that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it, when it comes to people that we're identifying in our either our anxiety, depression, our trauma, or our substance use disorder population, we just want to instill some of those fundamental kind of concepts that they can apply in their daily life. Mm-hmm. And that, that from whatever was about to kill them, whether it's trauma or rape or addiction, turns into resiliency and strength. Right, right. That's right. what we do. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of that other stuff that we discuss on a day-to-day basis doesn't change my day mm-hmm. today. A lot yeah. of that stuff doesn't change me at all. Yeah. And so really we want to say what's fundamental mm-hmm. and what can you truly have an effect over? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that old, if you want change, start with yourself kind of concept is, is actually an essential concept to what we call powerlessness. Mm-hmm. Powerlessness is not having no power. Mm-hmm. Powerlessness, if you finish the concept, is you're powerless over other things. Mm-hmm. You may be as, as willful as you want. Gravity is going to take you to the ground. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to addiction, that's what took us to the ground. And you could be as strong as you want. The thing is, I really have no real con- any power over people, places, and things. Mm-hmm. I don't even have I don't even have control over my own body. I had cancer. If my heart stopped right now, there's very little I personally can do about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I do have control over my effort. Well, so, and, and your truth. 
which is my effort, which is called honesty. Yeah, right. So the step one is about getting honest. Yes. And so that's your effort. Mm-hmm. And so that is where I focus on. And so you talked about tr- honesty, which is step one. We admitted we were powerless over drugs and our life was unmanageable. That's an honesty. And it was hard for an addict because yeah. the disease itself is very deceptive. Well, I think it's hard for a lot of people, even if they're not addicts. Well, it's absolutely not it. essential for most people. They're not going to die today if they don't get honest. But right. we believe if we don't stay honest, we'll die. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of concept is there in the model, the treatment model. But then you move through what's going to work for somebody else. So you start to believe in it. You start to turn your life over to something more than you. So if you had cancer, you turn over to an oncologist, mm-hmm. right? You, well, I don't know if I need a port. You don't worry mm-hmm. about it. Everyone gets a port with the chemo. Everyone gets eight <laughs> bags of chemo once a month. You know, mm-hmm. I had to turn my life over to Baptist Hospital. Mm-hmm. And so the same way with this treatment model, you turn your life over to something that works, yeah. you know, because you're not an expert in addiction. You've proven it. You, right. you, you can't get yourself clean. You've proven it. And so then the, the steps four through seven, we start to work on self. And there's a real process there. In 8 and 9, we start to work on our relationships outside of ourselves. And 10 and 11, there's that maintenance stuff. And it's very similar in diabetes. you got some initial stuff to get right, some fundamental concepts, right? Some Getting some skill training, you know, containment skill training, some other things. And then maintenance. Mm-hmm. If you go right back to the old way and doing the old, you're going to go the old outcomes again. Yeah. Stronger so connections. Focus on what you can change today. Yeah. And leave the rest because you're not going to make anything but yourself stressed out and frustrated. For me, that means I might go out and use. Mm-hmm. Or if not, I'll just be miserable. <laughs> and I don't want to be miserable. Right, right. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, to be critical of our society again, I'm good at that. Uh, you know the 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 term "fake it till you make it." That's the lack of step one. And you know, even with if you're not addicted to anything, if you're addicted to, uh, you know, being an imposter, it's going to lead to something. Let me just frame that for you. There are many concepts that, in a lived community, you'll know better what that concept means than otherwise. So when they first heard "fake it till you make it," which is an old AA concept, it's been around like "let go, let God." A lot of the stuff that people throw out. You know, a lot of us use psychological jargon thrown by Freud, but nobody believes in Freud, but we still use the jargon. A lot of people use this concept. So the first thing that I did in step one is I had to get honest with my sponsor. I talked about my life and I looked at my, the narrative of my life. Up until that point, I thought I needed drugs. But when I got honest and gave a narrative of my life, I saw that drugs were destroying me. Mm-hmm. So that was a, that was me getting honest. And then the, I, I, he talked about this concept of fake it till you make it. And that goes through around the steps four through seven. But it's more see it, be it until they see it. Right. It really, really was. I said, well, you just told me to be honest. Now tell me to fake it. You know, it's just like practice. Mm -hmm. You know, you take a little kid and if they don't believe they're ever going to be a a concert violinist, they're not going to ever do it. But they got to play. I I still play some cello. Um, Actually, Tammy Yunt works for you guys. And Mm -hmm. I played at her wedding. So you had to sit up straight. You had to play with force, play with... If you find a note, play it like you mean it. Even if it's the wrong note, that kind of... So... Fake it till you make it is about if you – I said, how do I become an honest person? I've been lying for so long. Like if I told you it was raining, you'd still have to go check the window. And he said to me, you know, you just got to fake it. So how do you fake being honest? And he said, tell the truth and stop worrying about the outcome. How do you how do you fake being kind and, and considerate and caring? He said, ask them about their day or their kids and look them in the eye even though you don't – I didn't care. I wanted to use dope. I didn't care. But after I did it for a while – I started to figure out, like, I was really curious what her kids were doing in soccer practice. You know? But you're not faking anymore at that point. You're because being you it. you started something that was uncomfortable, and you had early on no electrician, no medical student, no whatever. You've got to practice it. You've got to go through these internships. You've got to, you've got to try it until you learn it, and then you got to what? Teach it. Mm-hmm. 
that's when you really know that you know it is when you teach it. Yeah. And back in, in PA school, they'd say, you know, watch one, do one, teach one. Right. And right. that's what we do. And that's why that 12-step model is so important because to stay anchored, initially I needed a sponsor. And then to stay anchored, I needed a sponsee. Mm-hmm. I tell people my, my addiction was so bad I needed to make a career out of it because to stay clean and sober. Yeah. Well, there's something in there, too, you said that reminded me of the phrase or the notion that – to know or to find what you seek, you have to look where you least want to. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you well, the reason I didn't did not want to look there was because I, my brain was hijacked mm-hmm. and that meant no more drugs. If the one thing on the planet you thought you needed was drugs, that would be the last place in the world I want to go. Like I thought I was sitting on pins and needles and he would see every bit of that in me. Yeah. You know, and this is what we talk about. I have a training program just about 12-step facilitation that goes through a lot of this. I would sit right by the door. I would get there just one minute before and I would slip right out and never look anybody in the eye, right? He'd say, oh, no, no, no. You got to come over <laughs> and sit by me. And if you want me to work with you, you got to be 15 minutes here early, 15 minutes late. You got to make the coffee. You got to sit where the reading is. You got to raise your hand every meeting. You know, he's just like all these rules to anchor me. And he said, you know, just put your butt in that seat and your heart and mind will follow later. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was that fake it till you make it stuff. And it really does work that way. Behaviorism was B.F. Skinner, but before B.F. Skinner was Bill W. and Dr. Bob. And they talked about work a program. They didn't talk about thinking a program. They didn't talk about feeling a program. Your thinking is messed up. Your thinking got you here. Your best thinking. Your feelings are just totally screwed. You know, your dopamine's in the toilet. I was, you know, crying over like, cookie commercials and puppies and anything. I was just crying over nothing because your dopamine's in the toilet. And so he said, just work it. I'm asking you to do stuff. And I didn't, I couldn't think clearly. I couldn't have emotional clarity. And my life was in toilet. But if you told me to do stuff, you know, addicts can do stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of repetition, repetition. And if you can get the behaviors and you can ingrain those behaviors for the rest of your life, you'll be between those two lines. If you don't use, the rest can work itself out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, that seems like a good place to end. Why don't you give us uh, some shameless self-promotion? Where can we find more about? Absolutely. I would love to. So Integrated Care of Greater Hickory. Our website is integratedcarehickory.com. My my email address is crichardson at integratedcarehickory.com. If you want any of my training webinars, I got some on 12-step facilitation. I do lectures. I've spoken to uh, the Baptist associations in Catawba County. Uh, which, and so I do a lot of talks to hospitals. I've worked with hospice. Um, and I got Northwest AHEC here as a, as a reference because uh, I've, I've been really given a lot of good opportunities to create talks, accredited uh, talks through Northwest AHEC. And I really do appreciate that. You've been a great partner. Well, great. And you can find more about Northwest AHEC at northwestahec.org. Um, thank you so much for your time today. Corey Richardson, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much.